Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to How to Date, a show about how to master the messy, complex and downright bizarre world of dating when you really didn't think you'd be back here again. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba. I'm a psychologist, I'm one year out of my marriage, I'm a mum and I'm immersed in the world of online dating. Hi, I'm also your host, Monique Robin. I'm a mum of four kids and a yoga teacher trying to find men who like me rather than my limber joints. Ah, so Amantha, what's on the show today? Well, we've got a really awesome interview with Dr. Alexandra Solomon, who is a clinical psychologist based over in America. And I flew solo for this interview because you were in a yoga workshop all weekend doing ridiculous hours. And she was awesome. She was super insightful. I felt like I had a half hour therapy session with her. It was really good. Oh, that's so good. And also talking psychologist to psychologist, it was probably good I wasn't there. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We just want to keep it within the field. Please, <laughs> for these How funny is it that you run this like multinational business? I'm the yoga teacher and I'm always <laughs> unavailable for these interviews. I love it. Your schedule's crazy. Makes me feel so um, powerful. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, she, she was awesome. So we actually start the interview looking at what's the number one quality to look for in a romantic partner, which I won't give away. Oh, there's so many gems. So I'm looking forward to sharing that one. Yeah. I can't wait to hear it. So, Amantha, how was your week in dating? Fairly uneventful, actually. I had quite a big week at work, so dating took a back seat. Uh, but what about you? How was your week? Okay, so you know how you and I, we talk every day, but I, we, we actually try not to talk too much about our dating lives. That's right. Keep it fresh for the show. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what we do, isn't it, really? Because, it's you know, it's authentic. So anyway, I was consulting with my second best friend about this. Um, (laughs) I met this guy and on his profile he said the girl must exercise minimum five times a week. (laughs) On his profile. On his profile but didn't really explain why. I thought that specific number really was a little bit weird and I'm assuming most people wouldn't. I asked my second BFF what what they thought and they said yeah that's totally weird like that's so prescriptive but then I gave it some more thought because he was really good looking and I thought 
Well, actually, I can kind of relate to that because five times means that you are really dedicated to health and fitness. So three is kind of like because you have to. And also, I remember my ex really thought that it was kind of a waste of time that I would spend so much time working out and merely because he could maintain his level of health that he enjoyed only working out twice a week. And maybe I thought that this guy had had a past relationship where his wife or ex had thought that he spent too much time exercising. So he just wanted to lay out right from the onset that that's what he's going to be doing five times a week. So that was my rationale for contacting him. Read, he was really hot. So I decided to contact him even though he said something really dumb on his profile. Yeah. <laughs> so I sent him a message and I think I opened up with five times a week. Hope I don't have an injury some weeks, you know, question mark. And then he wrote back a really alarming response. Oh. <laughs> he wrote back going, yeah, I know it sounds a bit weird. So I read the first line and I'm like, okay, that's good. He goes, it's just that I've had a past experience where um, a person, very, very vague, has told me they're really dedicated to health and fitness and then we get into the relationship, they gain lots of weight and oh. and, <laughs> and they are no longer demonstrating that they're into health and fitness and I kind of felt like I was sold a lie. And then I wrote back, you know, some banter of like, well, you do know it's 90% diet and 10% exercise or whatever. And then he goes, yeah, but I feel like if someone is definitely exercising five times a week, which I perceive to be a lot, I feel like they're going to probably want to eat pretty healthily. So it's like an insurance policy. I'm like, wow. Oh my God. And is he, does he work in the health industry? No. Ah, oh. okay. All right. Continue. Yeah, no, no, yeah. no. He didn't oh. work in the health industry. And I later found out and I'll go there in a minute, that he actually is not dedicated to a healthy lifestyle himself. What? Yeah, but he does. He is a slim guy. So anyway, I said to him, oh, I find that really, really like regimented and prescriptive and I almost feel threatened by that. You know, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. What happens if I did gain weight and, you know, couldn't exercise for months on end? And he goes, yeah, deal breaker. <laughs> and my desire to give people the benefit of the doubt is really um, holding up in my dating approach at the moment, as you know, and this is all about, you know, trying to give people an opportunity to evolve as they get to know you. So I said, you know what, I want to hear about this. I want to hear, like, you sound pretty damaged with regards to to this fear. I said in a tongue-in-cheek way, let's meet. He suggested we go out for dinner, right? And I said, great, let's do that. He took picked the place. No, sorry, I picked the place. It was a Mediterranean place and we arranged it for a few days' time. We texted a few times in between that and one text he said, don't worry, even though Greek restaurants use a lot of olive oil, I'm sure we can ask them to cook in less. Really? Yeah, and I <sighs> said, not worried. <laughs> <You know? laughs> And then he's like, cool, but just like letting you know, because I know you're really health conscious. Like he's putting all his values or fears onto me, you know. So I get to this restaurant. I met with this skinny guy, definitely not athletic, skinny guy. And we get to this restaurant and me being quite facetious decides to order the only fried meal. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> fried meal on the menu and a bowl of fries. Was he like shooting you 
dirty looks. He actually sort of felt the need to compensate and to, you know, when people feel uncomfortable with a situation, they they get into people-pleasing mode. He goes, oh, yes, like sometimes when I eat out, I have a cheat meal and this is probably the first time you've been out in a while. So, yeah, go go crazy. Like, why not, right? Oh. And I'm like, no, 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 I'd order, order this pretty much every time I came here, if, even if I came here four times a week, which is actually untrue, but I was just being facetious because yeah. I was passive-aggressive about this whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he ordered, and I think in his passive-aggressive response, he ordered a Greek salad with less feta <laughs> and less olive oil. <laughs> and, yeah, so less feta, less olive oil. I'm so like, he basically had some lettuce and tomato. No, there's no lettuce. He had some tomato and cucumber. Oh, God. Yeah, he, you know, I think lettuce becomes too much of a carrier for oil yeah. <laughs> due to its, like, dips and yeah. mounds. Yeah, lettuce is fattening when accompanied by dressing. Did you know that? Duh. So anyway, I was so full but I was on a mission to, like, hoe down my fried calamari. <laughs> so I'm try- as I'm, like, you know, brazenly powering through this meal and I'm getting really digging in about this um, – issue he has with weight gain and it turns out and this is where it's interesting that his ex-wife was a certain weight when they got married and in actual fact she put on a very unhealthy amount of weight like we're talking almost 100 kilos of weight throughout their marriage to the point where it affected their whole life it affected her ability to parent she couldn't get off the couch it affected her ability to go on a holiday it affected her ability to you know look after herself and maintain a a standard of health and she was just unhelpable he couldn't help her he tried everything he even stopped working so once I realized this obviously his way of ensuring that he's never put in that position again was a little bit dramatic and he probably needs therapy to reconcile his past relationship before he goes out on the dating scene and I did say that to him and he was really receptive and open to that and once I realized that this guy was seriously damaged I had felt a huge amount of empathy for him and it made me realize that how good it is to give people a chance it was only due to my own baggage, and that is that I was always um, judged for exercising as much as I did, that I somehow misunderstood um, the reason why he was so prescriptive in his exercise requirements that we somehow managed to find ourselves on a date. Mm. But what it did do, and we acknowledged this, we discussed this, it allowed us to really understand that people's situations are obviously not necessarily going to define who they are as a person. He really wasn't that conceited. He just couldn't save his wife. Wow. I think it's so interesting when you're dating in your 40s and you're dating other people that, you know, like we're not in our 20s anymore dating where people don't have these really significant life experiences that shape them like in such a fundamental way I just find that really interesting I feel like I'm quite struck by that by going just comparing that to when we were dating in say our early 20s where you know what have people done they've gone to school and maybe they went to uni and maybe they've had I don't know challenging sibling relationships or something but like that's that's huge going through something like that. I know because like if you met someone in their 20s that had that um, requirement, you'd go superficial. They, they just yeah. aesthetically want someone that has the good body and that would be your assumption. 
And then to realize that this person had this experience where the aesthetics and the, the, the changing of the aesthetics actually symbolized an inability to actually conduct day-to-day life and that he was coming from that place where his fear was not being with someone who was overweight but being with someone that could not participate in life. Mm, yeah. It all of a sudden takes on a completely different angle. Well, I felt relieved that he wasn't as superficial as I had thought, but I also had a lot of gratitude for getting that lesson that people come from a whole gamut of experience when they're in their 40s -hmm. that can inform a certain belief system that may superficially seem inappropriate, but it's actually a little bit deeper than that. Yeah. So it stands testament to that idea that we really should take a bit more time to dig a bit deeper with people that we might or otherwise dismiss in our 20s. Mm. So are you going to see him again? No. Okay, why not? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? I actually, like, I think I could be friendly with him if I had the time to have another friend Mm. because I realised that what I liked about this guy is that when I explained to him, not everyone puts on 100 kilos. You're bringing your trauma into your next relationship. I don't think you're ready Mm. to be dating. He was really receptive to that. I said, you don't understand. Your profile sounds weird. Must exercise five times a week. So this guy was probably ready to get help and therapy. I think what I needed to do with him, which is what I did, is I sent him back to the therapist and said, dude, come back and see me (laughs) in a while. I don't think I'd be doing myself or him any justice um, getting him into a a relationship with those fears. Fair enough. Well, that was quite... Quite the week in yeah, dating. Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah, very interesting. Thanks for sharing that, Monique. Our guest on today's show is Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Alexandra is a clinical assistant professor at Northwestern University and also a clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. She writes a column for Psychology Today and is frequently asked to talk about love, sex and marriage with the media, including the Today Show, O Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue and Scientific American. I just loved this chat with Alexandra. She was very, very practical and very insightful and I definitely got uh, quite a few tips that I am going to be using myself from this interview. So let's head over to Alexandra. Alexandra, welcome to the show. It's so good to be with you. Now, I want to get stuck right into it. And I know that you have written about the number one quality to look for in a romantic partner. Tell me, what is it? Oh my gosh. Okay. So, you know, I have a lot of hats that I wear as a psychologist. And the thing that I realized a number of years ago is that there's a thread that goes through whether I'm teaching, whether I'm writing, whether I'm in my therapy office. Um, the thread that I'm always working on is this idea of relational self-awareness, that the foundation of a happy and healthy intimate partnership is so far beyond like the skills or knowing how to fight fair. It really is about how do we relate to ourselves? What is, um, can we bring courage and um, humility to ourselves, looking at what's getting stirred up within us moment by moment and um, use that as data to fuel how we show up in our intimate relationships. So the number one quality to look for in a partner and to nourish within ourselves is relational self-awareness. So I, I, I want to ask two questions around that. I, I've 
let's let's ask uh, let's focus on how can we build relational self-awareness in ourselves and then i also want to look at how can we identify if our potential mate has it so what are what are a couple of ways that we can build that quality in ourselves right the most important one is to um, be willing to notice what's happening within me in a moment-by-moment way and to know that when we're stuck in one of two different places, we've got to figure out how to shift. And the two places we tend to get stuck when we're not practicing relational self-awareness are shame and blame. So if you and I are having a conversation or a problem and I'm getting stuck in shame, I'm feeling like, oh my gosh, Amantha hates me. I'm broken. I'm damaged. I'm no good. I'm stuck in shame and I'm not using my reactions, my thoughts, my feelings as fuel to understand what's going on. Likewise, if I'm stuck in blame, like I cannot believe Amantha did that and how dare she and how could she and I'm getting very finger pointy, that's also blocking me from understanding what is it? Like what is it about what's happening between the two of us right now that's triggering me so much, that's so problematic? What does it remind me of? When have I felt this before? That how I experience you and how I experience the space between us is always, always, always information that I can use to understand myself more deeply and therefore show up for our relationship with that much more awareness and relationality. That's awesome. And when we're trying to pay more attention and notice those reactions and emotions in ourselves. Like, I mean, ideally, should everybody be in therapy? I know that I am. I've got a great psychologist that I see regularly. But if people are maybe reluctant to do that or don't have the resources to do that, what are some ways that people can start to process those things themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, big shout out for therapy, right? And I'm thinking especially if the if the folks who are drawn to your podcast are people who are coming out of a relationship and integrating and understanding what that love story was or lack of love story was, it's a really wonderful time to do a bit of therapy. I always preach this thing that we call dose-based therapy, like a dose of therapy at time one, and then you go away for a while, and then you know life throws you another curveball, and you have another dose of therapy down the road again. So I've now been a practicing therapist for 20 years, and I have clients you know, who come and they go, and then they come and then they go. And so I like that idea that we don't have to be in therapy for 20 or 30 years straight. We can sort of come and go. And when we're trying to make sense of something like a relationship loss, like starting again. But yes, I hear you that therapy is certainly not feasible for everybody all the time. And so it's going to sound <laughs> braggy, but this is why I wrote the book. The first book I wrote is called Loving Bravely. And actually, both of my books are organized in a way that you take a little bit of information in and then you integrate it. So both of my books, both Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back, are these books where you read a bit, you journal a bit, you read a bit, you you know have a particular kind of conversation with somebody in your life. And so I think you can use something like a book, like a support group. There certainly are lots of support communities, you know, where you're not paying a therapist, but you're working in relation to other people on a particular thing, like coming out of a divorce, like dating again. Those are other options. And how does one find these support community? Because certainly I'm a huge fan of reading and books to help gain self-insight, and I'll be linking to both your books in the show notes. In terms of support groups, how does one even find a support group to help with these things? 
I mean, I probably would start with a Google, you know, just like literally, especially now, I'm thinking about right now when so much is virtual, where we are doing so many things from our homes um, and we've got this amazing technology that can help people connect across across space and time. But I'm thinking also about, you know, I'm, I'm one of the thought experts on this brand new app called the Mind app, M-I-N-E apostrophe D. And it's not a support group, but it's like the Peloton of mental health where every day there are different thought leaders who are working on different aspects of emotional, relational, spiritual, physical health and wellness. And within the app, there's a chat function. So I, for example, will be doing a session. I did a session today on female sexuality and people are typing questions in and supporting each other in the, you know, in the chat. And so a space like that is, can be really lovely as well. That's awesome. That sounds like a great resource. Now, I want to go back to looking for uh, inner potential partner. How can we tell if they've got relational self-awareness? What should we be looking out for? So I think, well, I've got a whole bunch of ideas on this one, but I, one thought I have is about, you know, inevitably, as we're starting a new relationship on a first date or a second date, one of the things that we're going to end up talking about is sort of our relationship histories, you know? And I want people to be, as they're listening to a potential partner talking about their relationship history, I want them to be listening as much up to the process as they are to the content. So rather than getting stuck on you know, the previous partner's whatever occupation or how long the relationship was or some of those details. What I want you to be listening for is how this person is telling the story. And because there are clues within how the story is told that will give us um, some information about the degree of relational self-awareness this person has. So for example, if the story is a series of relationships where the sort of like punchline or the through line is, you know, we were clicking along and then she went crazy. We were doing fine and then she, I realized she was a jerk. Everything was okay until she, you know, betrayed me. Like if this, if the story kind of keeps being that the other person kept screwing up, that's a low relational self-awareness story, right? Because you know, I think there certainly are times where a relationship, you know, where the burden of a relationship ending pretty clearly falls to one partner, but love is incredibly complicated. And so I want to hear from a potential partner, a story that's rich with nuance, you know, about like, this is where I was in my life and I wasn't quite ready to give what this person needed. And I tried in these ways. And, you know, we got stuck in this cycle where the more I did this, the more she did that. And the more she did that, the more I did this, where somebody can talk a bit about the choreography of the last relationship. I love that advice. I feel like I've been on so many dates where men have been like, she was just crazy. I've heard that a lot. It brings me to another question I had, and I know you wrote a blog post about this around when do we take the skeletons out of our closet? Because when we're talking about our past relationships, and I know I've experienced this when I've been on multiple dates with the same person, I'll kind of get the the sort of rosy version of why a marriage broke down and, oh, it's all very amicable between us. And then by date three, uncovering more about what really happened and it's certainly not amicable between them and their ex. So 
Like what advice do you have around when do we or when should we start sharing those pretty personal things about ourselves? You know, if we think about like the two extremes, right, the one extreme is intense guardedness, right, where I don't I don't show you anything that's within my closet and I stay on the surface and I will talk to you only about the most recent Netflix series that I watched. Like that's sort of one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum is on day one, right? I'm telling you about the intimate details of previous relationships and of my childhood. And so though, and then, you know, there are 50 shades of gray between those two extremes. And so I think it is a bit of like, revealing a bit and seeing how it's handled, right? Because trust builds in the space between people. So if I share a bit about my relationship history and I watch you roll your eyes, make a snippy comment, not really hold it with any sort of care or warmth, that's going to kind of lead me to pause a bit, right? So it is a, it's a process and I can't know where my boundaries are with you it's not a hard and fast thing, right? Like I don't have a set of like capital B boundaries. I have boundaries that I navigate in the space between you and I and how you respond to my shares gives me a lot of information about whether I'm going to be leaning in more or whether I'm going to be kind of zipping myself back up a bit. That's really helpful advice. Just kind of almost, uh, I want to say like drip feeding those more intimate things that we might share. Totally. Yeah. I want to know like when, because certainly in Australia, a lot of us are leaning heavily on the apps right now and online dating. Although in Melbourne where I'm based, we've just come out of a very strict lockdown. So that certainly opens things up, which is exciting. But I think that a lot of people are using the apps and I want to know what are the kind of things that we should be looking for in people's online profiles on apps like Bumble and Tinder and Hinge and they're some of the common ones here to to kind of, I guess, get some clues that can help build that picture other than just relying on what the person looks like. Right. We, I was, I'll never forget, I was having a conversation with my graduate students about a year ago about dating apps. And uh, a number of the straight women were saying that they just automatically swipe left on the photo that is man with fish. That's just <laughs> that's like, okay, wait a minute. I've been in a marriage for 20 plus years. And so I haven't experienced the world. I've experienced the world of online dating through my graduate students and my therapy clients. And, um, and I get to sort of be, you know, a uh, an anthropologist of this world. I was like, you have to slow down and explain to me <laughs> what it means to swipe left automatically on the photo of man with fish. And they were all agreeing and they were nodding and they were laughing. And, you know, it, it was, it's what we know to be true from the research is that there's a lot of like unconscious process and unconscious bias that happens in online when we're interfacing with a dating app. And there's not a whole lot, especially on now the swipe-based apps where we're making very sort of quick, quick, quick decisions on people. There's not a ton that we can tell. You know, it's why I encourage people to shift as soon as they can from you know, swiping to messaging to a phone call because there's so much more information that we can glean in a phone call than in a text exchange, right? When we move from asynchronous communication to synchronous communication, that's when we can really start to feel the energy. And again, the energy is less about me sizing you up and more about sort of like feeling into how do I feel in this conversation with you? 
which is a bit, you know, a bit riskier, a bit more vulnerable. But I believe that we all have this sort of deep inner wisdom that we can tap into. So rather than scrutinizing, like, does this person check the boxes or what are, what are they saying? What are they not saying? Really like locating our attention in our own bodies and our own sense of like, do I feel curious, open, available, energized in this conversation? Or do I feel you know, guarded, self-conscious, uneasy. And of course, that may be shaped in part by the day we've had or the week we're having, which is why I encourage, especially people who are just starting after a long relationship, to just go slow and steady. Like, you know, to be really aware and mindful of the risk of burnout, you know, because we can. If we wanted to, we could be swiping all day long and messaging all day long. So really taking that slow and steady approach so that we can really like locate our attention in our bodies and and go in a really intuitive way because that's what, you know, love is much more art than science, I think. I think it's really interesting in terms of the role that gap plays. And I, and I think about this a lot. Like, for example, I had a, a video date, a Zoom date a few days ago, and I remember I was talking to Monique, my co-host, about it. And, like, it was fun. There was nothing wrong. You know, it was attractive. The conversation was okay. It didn't get too much beyond various bits of sort of small talk-ish about our lives. And I sort of left the conversation and granted I'd had a pretty tiring day, but I wasn't like itching to translate that into a face-to-face date. And Monique said to me, no, 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 you should just give him the benefit of the doubt. Like if nothing was majorly wrong, then why wouldn't you meet in person to give him another go because you'd had a bit of an ordinary day. And like, what would you advise in that situation where we're just kind of on the fence about someone? Like, (laughs) do we push ourselves to just go, let's just give them another go because nothing was majorly wrong. And let's face it, that's a pretty good selling point. Um, uh, Or or do we just like, because if I was trusting my gut, I wouldn't contact him again to be honest. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. I mean, as you're telling me that story, I'm like team Monique all the way. I'm thinking, (laughs) of course, because you know what? If you told me like, oh my gosh, like I had butterflies in my stomach and I was like jumping into the screen, I couldn't wait. I'd be like, "Mm, what is going on? Like, what is the exact wound, (laughs) you know, wound to wound communication that's happening here? Like I get, I feel much more concerned about sort of immediate, but and not that you know, I th- I'm sure there are so many times where there are immediate butterflies and it ends up becoming a beautiful love story. But there is, I, um, right. I think for a first, first, first conversation that's on video. So you don't even have, you know, your body really can't feel into like what he feels like, right? Because you're, you're limited. You have your eyes and you can see him, but you can see a one dimensional version of him. Like you need all of your senses to really like, I think kind of feel that a bit more. So I would, I would kind of feel like a, you know, a solid maybe would be one that I would want to encourage you to translate into a face-to-face. Okay, that, that's very helpful advice. <laughs> um, something I've noticed with the profiles, and I don't know if this is more for men than women, is I'm finding that maybe one in 20, one in 30 men are into ethical non-monogamy or looking for an open relationship. And this was not really a thing when I was dating 15 years ago before I met my ex-husband. And I want to know, what are your views on this? Is this something that we should be open to? You know, is monogamy the natural way to go? Oh, my goodness. 
Boy, this is a complicated one. I think that the you know the the jury is still out in some in some ways around like I think it's too thin a question to say is monogamy natural. I think that there is I think we are we are living in an exciting time where consensual or ethical non-monogamy is moving from the fringes into the mainstream. And there are, you know, there are people like I'm thinking about the um, authors of The Ethical Slut who are like, oh my gosh, you guys, welcome to the party. We've been figuring out how to do um, consensual non-monogamy like since the 70s, but like, welcome, like have a seat, you know, learn what you need to learn here. So I think it's really exciting to to be in this time of of questioning, like where are the sexual boundaries that we really want and need and why and what purposes they serve. The thing that I will say I worry about for, and it's especially for straight women, although I may be making this more gender than it needs to be, I guess I worry about anybody who feels like they need to be into consensual non-monogamy because it's the cool thing to be into, or it's the edgy thing to be into, or it's the woke thing to be into. Like, I think we're living through a time where a number of our institutions are being questioned and sort of dismantled and deconstructed. And we're asking questions about like, why is it this way? And so I think that monogamy, marriage, those are institutions that we are taking a very close look at. So it's understandable. But I guess my worry is that I would never want anybody to choose consensual non-monogamy because they feel afraid of disappointing somebody else, or they feel strong-armed into it, or they feel like somebody's going to walk out the door unless they agree to open up. That, to me, is our worst-case scenario. I guess I would want to understand, is this is this a man who's saying, I want ethical non-monogamy as a long-term, like I'm never interested in monogamy, or is it saying, I, I, I want the ability to date several people for a while until there's clarity? Like, I guess I want to understand that better, but I suppose if you're putting it in your profile, you are sort of declaring it as, this is a piece of my identity, much more so than like, you know, something that would be maybe temporary or early on kind of situation. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Another form of non-monogamy is cheating. And I know that you've written about this and have probably had many, many clients who have either cheated or been cheated on. And there is this question that comes to mind when you meet someone that has cheated in their marriage and maybe that's why it fell apart and they're on the dating scene again. Like, is it true? Once a cheater, always a cheater. Right. You know, it's so interesting. I was just the other day reading a research study and the researchers, you know, when they collected their data, they had not asked in their survey, uh, they asked a question about cheating, but they hadn't distinguished between consensual non-monogamy and non-consensual non-monogamy, which is what cheating is. And those are radically different things, right? So 
cheating, non-consensual, non-monogamy is definitely, you know, it is it is endemic. It is very common. Up to 70% of non-married couples, around 20% of married couples experience some kind of non-consensual, non-monogamy or extramarital, extra-relational sex. So it's common, certainly. It's incredibly painful, incredibly disruptive. And the, the research does show that people who have cheated in the past are at greater risk of cheating again. I think in part, you know, once a boundary has been crossed, it's a bit easier to cross it again. But the really big caveat there is that I believe we always, always, always have potential for growth and healing if we are willing to practice relational self-awareness, right? Like if we're willing to see our cheating as something that is a massive wake-up call, like a massive wake-up call around not just that I did harm to somebody that I said I loved, but that I did harm to my own sense of who I want to be in the world. I was outside of my own integrity. So somebody who can who can look me in the eyes and say, listen, I cheated on my last partner and it was like what I call an FGO, a fucking growth opportunity. Like I... I got my butt in therapy. I figured out what was going on with me. I had this, you know, what whatever, this wound from childhood I had never addressed. I was I had inadequate sex education, so I was wholly unable to talk to my intimate partner about my sexual wants and needs and longings. I had inadequate skills and tools, and I screwed up. And here's what I've learned, and here's how I practice my own recovery journey. That I think is a far safer bet as a potential partner than somebody who's like, yeah, I cheated, but you know, it was a a mess or whatever. They deserved it, or it was a loveless marriage, or what else was I supposed to do? Or I only cheated because they were crazy. You know, all that stuff is is just shows that the cheating has not been integrated. It hasn't been learned from. That's super useful when I guess when you meet someone that you learn has cheated and you're wondering, well, um, am I going to be their next victim in a way? But yeah, it's all about, I guess, like how they're seeing that. And look, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, I know that something you talk about is the idea of conscious dating, which I think is so relevant because it's really easy for our phones and all sorts of apps and definitely dating apps to be just this huge just source of distraction and just avoiding dealing with actually our lives and what's going on in front of us. So can you can you talk a bit about how what, what is conscious dating? How how do you define it and how can we become more conscious daters? Mhm. I will, but will you also tell me what how you bring consciousness to your own dating? I'd be so curious to hear what tricks and skills you have learned are really helpful to support you in your dating. Yeah, and look, it's been an interesting one for me because I, I like one of the areas I specialize as an organizational psychologist is in productivity. And so I feel like I've really mastered the art of having my phone and social media not be a source of distraction. But what I found when I started dating this year and using the apps a lot is that they like, and just my own awareness around how I was using the apps is that at first they were definitely this source of distraction and I was quite mindless in how I used them. But I think since becoming aware of my behavior, I definitely don't use them in terms of looking through them during the day. It's something that Mm -hmm. I might set aside like five or 10 minutes for in the evening. And also I'm aware that I try to move messaging off the dating apps into WhatsApp or something that I might be checking during the day because I will check WhatsApp and my messenger 
app just for all sorts of communication during the day at various points in time. So I won't say I'm perfect at it, but I'm really aware when I feel like, oh, I'm just using this as a source of distraction and I'm not being mindful about it. I think that's so practical and so wise because it's potentially love, it's potentially sex, it's potentially, you know, commitment and vulnerability. I think we need to bring a kind of care to that rather than it's so easy with our phones to bring a kind of consumer mentality or as you're saying, distraction. My gosh, I that really resonates for me around my phone as a, as a source of distraction from, from things that are, you know, uncomfortable either within me or in the world, things that I'm worrying about, about the state of our world. So I think that's what our phones are up to and we need to be thoughtful about how we use them, I think, especially when we're using dating apps. And as you say, to move from being within that app to another form of communication as quickly as we can. So really remembering, so so the heart of conscious dating, you know, is one, remembering that the app is really a tool that is for us to use that tool to, um, to connect with somebody and, and to really approach dating as much as we can as an opportunity to learn more about ourselves, that, that dating can be something that, that gives us a chance, especially if we're coming out of a long time relationship to kind of clarify, like, who am I? What do I want? What matters to me? And that it's so much, rather than locating our focus either in, does this person check off all of my boxes? Or on the converse, locating our attention in, am I pleasing to this person? Am I Am I being awkward? Am I being smooth? Am I am I attractive enough to them? Like when we get located either in like me sizing you up or be, my worries about you sizing me up, we're missing the opportunity to to just approach dating as a vehicle to understanding ourselves and what matters to us. I love that. Such a lovely note to end on. Don't approach dating as a consumer. Approach it just, I guess, as a human. Really, is what you're saying. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm, well. Alexandra, it has been fascinating talking to you. For those that want to learn more about you and read more of your writing, what is the best way to do that? My website is a great place to start. So it's just dralexandrasolomon.com. And from there, you can um, check out the social media um, that I use. I'm, I'm, I'm on um, Instagram quite a bit and I share that on um, Facebook as well. So I'm really on there just about every day offering some kind of relationship, love, sex, um, advice and tools and tricks and um, information about the books is also on my website. Fantastic. I will link to all that in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much, Alexandra. I've learned so much. I've really enjoyed our chat. Great to be with you. Thank you. Okay, so Amantha, what was your biggest take-home from the interview? Uh, so my biggest take-home from Alexandra was yeah, around this concept of relational self-awareness and looking for that in the people that you're going on dates with. And I liked what she said in terms of how to identify it. So hearing about how they speak about their ex-partners and looking if they're doing blaming or shaming and particularly blaming. I feel like I have experienced that a lot on dates where like I'll ask, you know, how did, why did your marriage end? How did your, you know, big relationship break down? And so, so many men, I think probably so many women do this as well, just go into the blame game about how it was essentially all about them. Oh, they just like, they went crazy. Oh, they had blah, blah issues or, oh, they were just really, 
you know, insert this negative personality trait. Like, and, and it's all about them, which means that they're not taking ownership for what they put into that. Because I mean, every relationship is co-created. We all bring stuff to it. So I found that really interesting and just interesting to think about asking those questions on dates. And I also feel that even if what they say in their blaming and shaming is true, they're still the enablers. So they have to take responsibility for that. Yeah, it'll it'll definitely make me think differently about those answers because I find when someone's going into that mode around, oh, my ex this and that, you, you kind of like want to be on their side, like particularly if you really like them and you want to kind of empathise and go, oh, that must have been hard dating someone that just went like crazy in inverted <laughs> commas. It's easy to get sucked into that story but just just remembering I think when you're hearing that story to go, that's not the full story. And if they really can't take ownership of what they contributed, then they probably don't have high relational self-awareness and they're probably not going to be the easiest or most appropriate partner for you. Yeah, I've got two opinions on that. My first one is that them demonstrating that relational self-awareness also enables you to do the same when you're discussing your marriage. I feel like often when somebody is talking about their crazy ex or whatever blaming that they choose to bestow upon them, it often makes you feel like you have to comfort them by bagging your ex too. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. And all of a sudden you now create this tenor, this dynamic between the two of you where it's based on not owning, not mm. not owning your response. And that's not a great start for any interaction. But my second opinion on this is, and I, I'm challenging the advice in some ways, I guess. As a yoga teacher, I believe that the hardest thing to do in life, especially in uncomfortable situations, is hold space for stillness. And I wonder whether this blaming behavior comes from that anxiety of not having a conversation. So it's much easier to fill gaps in conversation by being by giving your reactive response. And your reactive response is obviously to be angry because your relationship ended. So I wonder if like even though that might be exhibited initially, whether it's still worth giving a person the chance to be a little bit more comfortable in the interaction you're having with them to then start expressing their part to play. Yeah, it is funny that whole like bonding over horrible exes. Yes, that totally happens, doesn't it? Totally. You all of, all of a sudden found your first thing in common. To both hate on your ex. That's right. And that's so unhealthy. So not conducive to good future relationships. So that's going to be my thing that I'm going to do on dates. I'm going to probe a little bit more around uh, how they talk about their ex and also avoid falling into that trap of ex bagging. Um, Yourself, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also just remember, though, if they do start talking about their ex negatively, to then just give them a little bit of an opportunity to maybe bring themselves into the story and take some accountability. So I think that's a good idea. Yeah. yeah. So asking, uh, so what What are your flaws? What did you do wrong here? Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> in a nicer way. Yeah, mm. challenging them. Mm. Yeah. Like it's almost passive aggressive to know that they're bagging their ex and to see that as a warning sign but not to actually challenge it and give them the opportunity to redeem themselves. Mm. True. Yep. Yeah. All right. I will do that. 
That is it for today's show. If you have enjoyed How to Date, why not share it with other people that you think could benefit from some of the advice that we are offering. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love to get your feedback. Please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listened to this show from. And we will see you next time. See you soon.